Talking Theater with Sir Holwith Felix Smooth, the only podcast on earth about the theater. The screen is a far-off place. Its deep-heated deserts, wide-reaching oceans, its snowy mountain peaks, underground caves of wonder, its majestic cerulean skies atop towering cities and sun-kissed Elysium fields, rural plains soaked in bright light. It's the desolate edge of time and space, as far back or as far forward as you might like to go. The stage is home. The words of Gemma Collins. Wonderful. Good day. My name is Holworth Felix Joe Smooth, and chickens, I must interject my normal introduction and tell you that this week I'm on a fucking cloud nine. And not just because I'm on new medication for the gout. Well, possibly partly that, but more because of the reaction this world-renowned series has garnered. Yes, you heard correctly. Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre, is world-renowned. And what exciting news to relay. I can confirm that yesterday I was contacted by a Mrs. Elsa John Smith, a local woman from a small province in Nigeria, who has written a gushy review of the show and is enjoying it so much, I I can barely contain my excitement, she wants to invest in it to the tune of 300,000 naira. Though her English is poor, she writes very persuasively about her business dealings in Nigeria, and very impressive they are too. She also writes something about hoping to meet and marry me, but we'll park that for the moment. And so, I will this afternoon be sending over my bank details, and should Dionysus be smiling down on us, Talking Theatre will be purchasing a premises for its dealings within days. Honestly, I mean, I knew it would be a hit, but what a fucking hit! <laughs> oh, oh, no, my mouth, I, I mustn't swear. That naughty boy, Holworth. I shall have my editors on the phone again. <laughs> that joke. We don't have editors at such a very small operation here. Just myself, my producer, who's also my partner in crime, and my partner, and our pet iguana, Keith, who sits with me throughout as a sort of randomly defecating mascot. He's lovely, but he does produce an ungodly amount, which I've told Sean will happen if he insists on feeding him whole scotch eggs. Anyway, that was a digression, a pleasant digression, it has to be said. 300,000 naira! But a digression all the same. So let us press on to today's episode, Acting, Stage versus the Screen. In this week's Type 30, I hope to dispel some of the myths surrounding both art forms, and using my experience... Offer some tips on how to get ahead in both. That's uh, get ahead as in do well, not as in get ahead, which in both cases you would need to go to the props department to obtain. But more on props, departments, and severed heads later. For now, on with the show! When I called up Dusty Hoffman to get his opinion on the fundamentals for this episode, he asked me very frankly who it was and how I got his number, and he was right to do so. Not knowing him, having never spoken to him, and having no discernible friends or contacts with him, it must have been a shock to have been phoned at 4am his time, especially as his number is unregistered. I let him know that 
having worked for MI5 during the war, I had my ways, and also that he needed to calm down because shouting obscenities like that wouldn't get him anywhere. He told me he'd be calling the police, and to his amazement, I agreed he should. I suggested he might also want to check the security in his house and his wife's text messages. If such a pedestrian deception as obtaining an unregistered number was so easy, there's no tell who would be doing him up, as they say on the continent, in all sorts of areas of his life. By the end of the conversation, which was twenty seconds later, he seemed placated, and we left on, if not a friendly note, then certainly an acquaintance one, and went our separate ways. Him back to bed, me to lunch at the Harvester in Bromley, and a bang-up bit of glub-glub it was too. Cumberland sausage and mash with onion gravy and a side of chips and mash. Oh, and thanks for the smiles, Tom, our server. Now, the lesser among you may be wondering what the point is to this story, and I have to say, I've spent some time wondering that myself, mostly on the toilet. But it is, of course, about first impressions. Oh, some groans of realisation. I assume I can't hear you. Yes, the first impression, or audition, if you prefer, in the original fromage, is most certainly the first way in which these great disciplines diverge. It would be remiss of me here to tread on the toes of a later episode by going into too much detail of the various audition techniques, but let us summarise at least, for God's sake. First, to the stage. Stage auditions are a curious beast indeed. In most instances, the actor will be required to learn two or three scenes, should it be a play, or a few contrasting songs, should it be a musical, or even perhaps a small routine, should it be a ballet or jamboree. This is... Rarely enough preparation, though, it has to be said, and the more intuitive stage actor will know to learn as much as possible, regardless of, and crucially, outside of the piece itself. In 1969, I made director Richard Eyre collapse when I informed him I had learnt the entire score of Guys and Dolls for my audition with him. And he was beside himself, as was I. Well, it was a mirrored room. And my learning of the entirety of one of the greatest American songbooks to have been created didn't end there. I'd learnt it nearly all with my own spin on it in addition. I could sing Bushel and a Peck two octaves above any lady actor, Luck be a lady backwards, and Adelaide's Lament with a Welsh accent and a lisp. And I did, one after the other, to the thunderous applause of the three people on the panel. Uh, note. Panel is a technical term used in the theatre, meaning the three men who think they are the most important people in the operation, but who, when it comes to the crunch in delivering the piece, do very little at all. We tend to call them the production team, but you'll find other terms are used, just not to their face. Yes, the array of talents I put on stunned Dickie Air into silence, and it's true he had not one, but two angina attacks in the space of three minutes. Once he came round with a few light slaps and a glass of cold velvet to the face and neck, he stood, shook my hand, cupped my left arse cheek in a small embrace, and offered me Prospero in the Tempest. Afterwards, he had a further four angina attacks before finally settling himself with a dry sherry as we signed the contracts. Richard always brings sherry to auditions and rehearsals and on one occasion a burial. It's a home brew of his which he calls Mother's Funk, and funky it is. He, of course, insists it's all above board, even though if you check the handwritten label, it says 111% on it, and it has a small skull and crossbones. Yes. I once saw Derek Jacobi drop a little on his cravat 
at a black tie function, and within ten minutes the entire thing had disintegrated, and Jacoby was accosted by the host and asked to leave for breaking the dress code. They haven't spoken since. Well, you wouldn't, would you? Naughty dick. So, the theatre audition really is about showing as many of your talents as possible with the time you get in the room, of which the industry standard is 30 seconds or minus four bars average, whichever is less. Personally, I've never looked back from this technique, and the industry is littered with similar examples. Nicholas Heitner told me that whilst Benedictus Cumberbatch's to be or not to be was compelling in audition, it was his impressive fire-juggling that won him the role of Hamlet, and not his commanding use of the verse. I've also heard from a bartender in Soho, London, that he's rather good at windmilling, but I, I think that's um, unrelated. I must Google that. The screen audition has two main elements. Rather than the usual queue of thespians bubbling together on the stairs outside the room, complaining about not being able to eat because they're destitute from their art, one is more likely to find a single auditionee in a hotel room being asked to show their breasts to check they're big enough to satisfy the producer's face. Once this lengthy process has concluded, the short camera test may follow. Often, though, it's unnecessary. So, one can see the screen audition, by comparison, is almost the complete opposite in that the actor is required to do very little, and this opposition permeates through the general consensus on theatre and screen acting. In the theatre, one must do as much as possible, and on screen, one must do as little as possible, even nothing if one can get away with it. Um, Nicholas Cage is the obvious leader in the field of screen acting, and hasn't moved his face on screen since 1985. And what an arresting effect it has. To watch Cage on screen is to see a master at work. Every non-moving of the mouth, every vacant look with the eyes, every soulless expression forces the audience to consider what is going on behind the seemingly dead characters he's portraying. Of course, there seldom is anything going on, and therein lies the trick. As Cage uh, said to me once at a SAG after-party, the beauty of it, Holworth, is that they don't no, the difference. And after rubbing his thumb and finger together repeatedly, as if to suggest he was making money out of both the producers and the audience for doing absolutely nothing, he slinked down and disappeared under Olivia Coleman's large dress. This trickery, as he called it, became so compelling that in 1997, he and John Travolta were challenged by the UN to change their faces, to see if it could be replicated, you know, to swap the faces, as it were. Could... Greece's Danny Zucker have his face removed, swapped with Cage, in order to prove that Cage's screen talents were unable to be replicated. Uh, overall, the experiment was inconclusive, but the documentary makes for compelling viewing, as Travolta valiantly tries to do more with Cage's face, but fails miserably. It's wonderful, and I only wish they'd continue it with others. Personally, I'd like to see Helen Mirren face swap with Sigourney Weaver, but that's just me. Let's have equality in all areas of film, please. Come on, ladies. Rip your bloody faces off. I expect it would be somewhat easier to do it with some of the Hollywood actresses, as they regularly have their faces taken off and restretched. Or lifted, if you want to be more polite about it. I know Goldie Horn has it done once a fortnight treating herself to a cosmopolitan afterwards at her local watering hole, where she tries to pick up men who think she's 22 for a short time. 
before the inevitable slip. Incidentally, Goldie, do return my calls. I miss you. Last time I turned up at your house, you looked so shocked to see me. It was a real body blow. Then again, after 45 facelifts, you'd expect some degree of shocked expression. Your eyebrows are up behind your crown, dear. As I say, do get in touch. You're listening to Talking Theatre, the only podcast on earth about the theatre. Next up, we'll be delving into specific performance techniques and how they differ from stage to screen and ultimately which is better. We must ask the important questions, like, is it true cameras are made of secrets? Why is cheese yellow on screen but purple on stage? And why hasn't anybody ever thought of filming a stage production? All this and more after a word from this week's sponsors. Pictures of mountains and fresh air, and a woman fading into the picture. Women tossing their heads back, and smiling with their eyes. A businesswoman hurrying up an escalator, and meeting a friend they haven't seen for a long time, and having dinner with them, and enjoying themselves. Another woman laughing, whilst looking into the middle distance. Happy women living normal lives. Tenor ladies. Because women with leaky bladders can live normal and productive lives. Tenor ladies. Because it's not always great to get wet. Tenor ladies. Tenor ladies are proud sponsors of Talking Theater. The only podcast on earth about the theater. Body language, or smutty doings, as it used to be termed at the RADA, is a key part of an actor's armoury. What we do with our bodies on stage and screen can be the difference between an actor's performance achieving the Academy or Olivier Award or being rejected and relegated to the bargain bin at your local blockbusters video. Ah, blockbusters. Another gone. A paradise lost. And it goes back to our do-everything-versus-do-nothing. To use an analogy, on stage the body should be much like an octopus, fluid, constantly moving and striking to look at. Conversely, on screen, the body should be more like a meerkat, stiff and all eyes. In other words, if your body physically hurts when you come off the stage because you've been moving so much it would be classed medically as a fit, then you're just about at the right level. On screen, anything more than catatonic? <laughs> you might as well punch every member of the cast and crew in the face, because you've ruined the film. As a film director once quietly whispered to a young moi between takes, Holworth, if you fucking keep blinking and moving your fucking chest up and down like that, I was breathing, I'll rip your fucking head off and shit down your neck. I learnt the hard way, chickens. Don't you be the same. What audiences also don't always understand, because they're mostly stupid, is how the body exists in these two mediums. I'm referring, of course, to the naked factor. The naked factor. Because the stage is a live experience where the audience share the room with the actor, the performers must wear costume. And trust me, it's a good thing. 
You don't want a crazed fan only ten feet from you, stretching forward to grapple and pull at your threatening bits. No, 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 no. Pantaloons and a corset at the very least when treading the boards, my friends. On screen, however, all actors perform naked and then have their clothes placed on using CGI in the editing process. This allows directors and designers to change clothes at a whim, making the entire process more intricate and more creative and more sexy. Because of its complexity, though, it can lead to some rather funny mistakes. There were two in the most recent movie adaptation of Cats, the Andrew Webber feline farce about nothing in particular. In one frame, where Judy Dench is stood amongst the cast, looking bewildered, presumably wondering why she ever agreed to do it, you can spot her actual hand, which has been left un-CGI'd. Oh dear, oh dear, oh dear. In another, James Corden's scrotum can be seen descending beyond his trouser line as he lies across a large dustbin lid. I think, pleasuring himself. I'm not sure I wasn't paying attention. The whole thing was a dreadful business. I asked James over a pret-a-manger about it, and he tried to suggest that it was all left in on purpose. When I laughed, thinking he was joking, he burst into tears and began to rock, crying uncontrollably. It was hard to watch as I sipped on my peppermint tea. Whilst I couldn't console him on the film, of course I couldn't, have you seen it? It's a dreadful business. I did tell him that the cinematographer had caught his smooth sack beautifully. It didn't curtail his deep sadness, though, and he made his excuses and left, after purchasing seven chocolate orange cookies. In truth, I'm glad he did leave. It was getting pretty embarrassing having to pretend I didn't know who he was. Yes, that film has certainly taken its toll on us all. Cats. Cats. Now, the voice, I'm glad to say, follows the same rule of thumbs as the body, on screen, the voice should be like a mouse in a box in a cupboard, barely audible, squeaky, a little bit annoying. On stage, the voice should be like an elephant stepping on a large nail, surrounded by a megaphone switched to the on setting. If you don't master these differences, you may find you end up reversing it to a truly terrifying effect, like Sir Ian McKellen, who, in his screen debut, shouted so loudly he cracked all the camera lenses and caused permanent damage to the sound operator's cochlea. At least I... I think that's what he said. Bloody McKellen again. Yet this is why you often hear people suggesting actors with particularly recognisable vocal apparatus should stick to stage or screen because they require such a different timbre, and also because stage actors are often really bad on screen, and vice versa. Incidentally, McKellen, who steals every film he's in, literally, I've seen him coming out of HMV with Lord of the Rings DVDs stuffed into his jacket pockets, he is a master on the stage because he knows the rule and he sticks to it. The rule being that actors must always shout on stage, as loud as they can, ideally. The common misconception is that this is damaging for the voice, but on the contrary. My good friend and the godfather to my third child, Wexley, Brian Blessed, has spent his entire career bellowing on stage and now, at the ripe old age of 103, he's still booming strong. In fact, only last year, in a production of Julius Caesar, Brian gave cries so gusty and forthcoming that the force of it took the top layer of the faces of the front row clean off. One particularly irate patron tried to sue him for attempted murder, but alas, an usher Brian was giving it to at the time came to his defence as a witness and 
That coupled with Brian's ties to the Mafia meant he was released without charge. Rather than make a fuss, I'm told that the theatre just removed the front row of seats. Oh, and also made the addition of a pre-show announcement, which, um, if I can remember rightly, went along the lines of patrons should be aware that at this performance, Brian Blessed is so loud he might take your face off. Goldie and Nick would have loved it, thinking about it. Now, of course... Blessed Brian is an extreme case, but on the whole, the, the rule does stand. Whether we like it or not, one must shout on the stage. And no, it's got nothing to do with reaching the back of the theatre, or, or being heard, or any of these newfangled ideas you hear these so-called bloody vegan practitioners expunging from the gob boxes in the expensive and largely fruitless lessons of the Polytechnic Institution, masquerading as a drama school. God, I hate them. No, we shout because it is the duty of the stage actor to penetrate the audience with the words of the playwright to the point of exhaustion on both our and the audience's parts. If you can leave the stage and sort of work it into the direction to be stood not an inch from an audience member's face in order to scream your lines, so much the better. And contrary to popular belief, it's actually very good for you. These constant myths surrounding the voice, its durability and its uses are continually vexing for us professionals. But I have to say, I have to, say, I have to admit this right now, we do often come under some friendly fire in our differing opinions. Far be it from me to cast aspersions about some of my fellow colleagues, but I saw an article where Tom Hanks spread the notion that the voice was the most important tool an actor has at his disposal, and that one should treat it delicately and, in his words, take care of it. <laughs> thanks, Tom Hanks. But no thanks, Tom Hanks. Hanks. The voice, the most important tool. <laughs> no thanks, Tom Hanks. Hanks. Rubbish, nonsense, puppycock, devil and codswallop. And shit. The greatest tool an actor has is his teeth. Incisors, canines, molars. Tear, rip and chomp. You can't go wrong. Bloody brilliant. And that's without even getting into the wisdom at the back. In fact, while we're here, let's just burst a few more myths that I have experienced in my long, illustrious and downright impressive career. Here's my top five Mythbusters. Mythbusters. Myth one. Comic actors. A very common misconception is that comedians, whether on screen or stage, are very funny people in real life. If you've ever met a comedian, you'll know how categorically untrue that is. They are mostly vacuous, self-centred and incredibly tired people who once dreamt of being great actors and had to settle for two-bit has-beens haunting dingy little clubs just to be able to pay their landlord, their frequent prostitute and their drug dealer. I mean, they really, really are, I can't impress this enough, they really, really are empty vessels with nothing remotely funny or interesting about them, save a, a few grumpy quirks, like mopey Paul Merton, who, as an example, has substituted hello for piss off since Christmas 2001. Myth 2 Orcs, goblins, munchkins, pixies and gremlins. Seen mostly on the screen, these creatures of the night are often thought to be mythical and created with CGI or the good old-fashioned hand-up-your-jacksy puppet, but nothing could be further from the truth. 
Nearly all of these species are found in the dense forest of Papua New Guinea, often within the same food chain, making it very easy for producers to hunt, trap, catch, use, and then kill them. So, yes, those orcs really were eating man flesh at Peter Jackson's call of action. Those goblins really were farting all over David Bowie and Labyrinth. And those munchkins really did carry knives and steal Judy Garland's uppers on the set of Oz. Now, whilst the genealogy of them all is complex and too difficult to pin down in one short, unresearched segment of a podcast, the general rule is that carnivorous orcs eat water-dwelling herbivorous pixies, whilst goblins and gremlins coexist, living both underground and in the trees, hunting orcs in small packs known as grobblers. Munchkins are the small tribespeople who watch it all happen and do a lot of singing and dancing. Film producers must get a permit to hunt the various species to use in film and also offer them equity minimum. Myth 3. Ghosts. This refers to the common myth that whilst all theatres are haunted, film sets are not. I mean, this has been pretty roundly proved a nonsense, but every decade or so it seems to rear its ugly head again. Uh, a good example is in 1990, when on the set of Home Alone, Macaulay Culkin was visited by a ghost with a white face, long black hair, a black hat, and a silver glove. The ghost, known to Culkin affectionately as Michael, walked backwards, spoke with a childlike voice, and carried a monkey called Bubbles. Uh, oh, oh no, wait, that, no, that was, that would have been Michael Jackson. No, disregard that. Uh, well, there's another example, anyway. Uh, on the set of The Wiz, Diana Ross was accosted uh, by a ghost with uh, slim girl-like features who sang very short vowel sounds like hee-hee and ha-ha and, and was dressed head to toe as a scarecrow. And his... Uh, oh, right, that's... That's Michael Jackson again. Oh, butter my ass. Myth 4. Buttercup. On the set of Darling Buds of May, David Jason told me that if you hold a buttercup flower under your chin and it causes your chin to glow yellow, it means you like butter. This is nonsense. The glow is simply a reflection and appears on all chins. I should know. I check continuously and have done since 1986. If there's a buttercup in the vicinity, I will pick it and immediately make for the nearest stranger who I hold down until I see a healthy golden reflection. They rarely tell me if they like butter, they're often terrified, but it matters not. I don't like butter, messy stuff, and my chin glows yellow every time, so it really, really is a load of old bollocks. Myth 5. Christmas to dogs. In 1967, Jack Nicholson bought me a small pet chihuahua as a gift, at least I think it was. As he handed it to me, he said, remember, a dog is for life. Not just for Christmas. And I've heard that said by many people ever since, but once again it is a common misconception. Look, I loved Neville, I really did. We would go for long walks in the day, eat together, I'll never forget his little ears, and the way he used to snuggle into my chest and lap, nuzzling his little nose under his own paw when the evening fire was too bright or too warm or too bright. He was a truly wonderful dog, and I doted on him. Nevertheless, when January the 1st came by and the Christmas period ended, I knew deep down he was just for Christmas and that I didn't want him around anymore. And I opened the door and I let him leave. Or rather, I pushed him out and ignored him until a neighbour heard his cries and came and collected him. I think. I can't remember. It's perfectly possible to have a lovely doggy just for Christmas. And I can't recommend it highly enough. Mythbusters. 
In the long hot summer of 1963 on the set of Zulu, Michael Caine punched me on the nose, not once, not twice, not three times, not four times, not five times, but seven, eight, eight times. My climb, asking a question about what I should do after he said his line. I was struggling to understand what the hell he was saying, and indeed how the hell he was saying, and so I asked him, Michael, do you mind if I ask you how you think I should react to your line? And no sooner had I spoken, had he decorated the set with the red juices from my nose. As I came to, I heard him say, react to that, and whilst I thought I understood his point, something still troubled me, and I got to my feet and asked for further clarification on the react comment. No sooner had I asked him about it, had he punched me again, and this continued until I gave up, slash, completely passed out and was rushed to A&E. It was, <laughs> it was hard going, and my nose has never been the same. Quite literally. The eighth punch ripped it clean off, and I've worn a prosthetic one ever since. What it did do was teach me the most important difference about stage and screen acting, and that is the difference between action and reaction. Kane's point was... Not just that he was a hard bastard not to be messed with, but also that on the screen you must react in the moment and never consider anything. I, up to that moment, had been very used to the theatrical process of being accosted by the director every other line to discuss with the entire company what the line or that moment was about, interrogating it mercilessly until it is so contrived it is the very definition of a lie. An on-stage lie. In other words... In the theatre, the moment is scrutinised so you may action it. On screen, the moment comes and goes, and if you're lucky, you reacted appropriately. If you didn't, you'll most likely find out through some, well, I don't know, snotty-nosed review on Rotten Tomatoes, which calls your African tribesmen both badly judged and not just a little bit racist. It was a different time, chickens. Come along, come along, come along, come along, come along, come along, come along. Weathering the storm of this debate has been tricky, and I'm able to say I've covered it wholly and with no stone unturned, chiefly because I am a liar and a fantasist. I also googled what the primary difference was, and was humbled to read similar words to the ones I've used frequently in this episode, like voice, body, audience, screen, stage, and acting. I suppose the best way to end such a journey would be to finally give my opinion on which is the better of the two. I mean, it's an almost impossible task, but forgetting nearly everything I've posited, and instead basing it solely on the difference in pay, I would have to say, screen. Listen, I love the old crusty bitch, the stage, don't get me wrong, but to me, the lull of the wealthy temptress that is the screen will always be the winner. But it's like the bisexual said, if you can, do both. My, 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 having listened to this back, there's an awful lot about people's faces being ripped off, isn't there? <laughs> oh, wonderful. Perhaps amongst all this tomfoolery and self-aggrandizement, this back and forth on the stage and the screen, and which is better, screen, that's really what it's all been about. People's faces being ripped off. No, 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 it isn't. Of course it's not. It's 
That would be mental. No, it's not about that at all. I know it's not about that, because when I said that, uh, my partner started shaking his head and is now curling each hand over the other as, as if to say, was sort of miming the words, get, get on, get on with it. It's correspondence time! Yes, it's the last part of the episode where I answer a letter from a keen listener who has little or nothing in their life. So much so they must write to a 28-minute average podcast with an inane question or comment often going into too much detail about their own private life at the same time. I do, however, want to take this opportunity to say how much we value these letters. Well, it's it's about a halfpenny a go at the uh, Money for Rubbish Recycling Centre, so do keep them coming. Last week's nearly got us up to a small bottle of Bolly. That's champagne. Today, we're here from Angela Strife, 59, from Fife, who writes in with a very very curious question indeed. Hello, Angela. She writes, Dear Holworth, when I heard what your next episode was going to be, I had to write to you. She really didn't. Because I myself have always found the screen and stage to be a most confusing distraction. Well, you're not alone, Angela. So is Julia Roberts. Though I am by day a traffic warden, I have had some experience on the stage and on the screen, and I have to admit to being none the wiser. Many years ago, I was an extra on the film Braveheart, and can be seen behind Mel Gibson's wig on three occasions, and behind his kilt on one. I squatted to get in the shot. My stage experience stretches back further to my studies, where I was one of the top cumpts, or the Cotswolds University Musical Theatre students. Our speciality was Gilbert and Sullivan, and we did HMS Pinafore every term for four years. I enjoyed both experiences equally, and got so much out of each. They were, on the whole, so similar and so different. And so, my question to you is this. What is it that made my husband leave me last month, do you think? And why? Oh, Angela. Oh, Angela, 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 Angela. Oh, Angela Strife, 59 from Fife. What can I say? Firstly, as always, thank you for your letter and for the Toberone and bath salts that are accompanying it. What a lovely, lovely gesture. I'm delighted to hear you were in Braveheart, with presumably our paths may have crossed, because I was also in that film. Uh, oh, and it has to be said, I also squatted behind Gibson's kilt. It wasn't for a shot, you understand. I just wanted to see how method he was. And he was. Good grief. What a hard shoot that was, though. Uh, up at 6am, to bed at 6am. You didn't sleep for four months. And the rain! Oh, the rain! Well, you know, that's Scotland for you. As Lulu once said to me, It's all hills and water, that place. I'm glad I got out! And as for your stage experience, well, I won't be commenting on that, as I fell out with both Gilbert and Sullivan separately, and my mouth and tongue are tied by their estates. All I will say is this. It's not opera. I mean, it really isn't, obviously. Now, to your central question, which, to be fair to me and to the listeners, is not at all seemingly to do with the matter at hands. Nevertheless, I'll endeavour to put to bed this conundrum, but only because on my three-year sabbatical in 1973, I did train and work as a therapist and masseur in Tanzania, so I have some commerce with the mad, bad, dangerous and crippled. So... To me, Angela, there are uh, a few things. Um, firstly, you mentioned it was quite recent that he left you, is that right? So that leads me to believe it could be your age. 
You're 59, and presumably no spring chicken. I mean, who is at 59? And perhaps he thought he couldn't bear another moment with an old hen and fancied trading you up for a young chick. I mean, if that's the case, I wouldn't blame yourself. There's literally nothing you could have done except perhaps keep yourself in better shape or ate healthier foods or used more products on yourself or paid to have the necessary corrective surgery. I wouldn't think twice about it personally. If not physical appearance, it could, of course, be your personality. The letter you've written is a little needy, in my opinion, and clocking the fact you're a traffic warden suggests you might be the sort of person who has such a boring life they're forced to take pleasure in ruining others. Which is often the case with traffic wardens. Perhaps you felt he couldn't stand another story about how you timed and find a soon-to-be father who parked from a single yellow to drop off his birthing wife at a hospital, or... I don't know how you waited round the corner to watch a disabled person realise their car had been clamped. Finally, it may be your narcissism. I don't want to put the nail in the coffin on this business, but all this talk of stage and screen is a bit much, and I'm struggling to understand why you go on and on about it, Angela. I'm assuming this is the case of the house too? Perhaps he'd rather fling himself to ravenous dogs than spend another minute talking about how surprisingly nice Gibson is in real life, or how you can still remember all the words to I am the very model of a modern major general, even with two bottles of red inside you. It could be any of these things, Angela, and more. But, in truth, I don't know. What I do know is he's gone, and judging you by your letter... He's never coming back. Treat yourself to a West Highland Terrier, Angela, and another bottle of wine. I do hope that helps. Angela Strife, a fifth to none from Fife. To you, I say, good day. That's all we have time for today. Join me next time when we'll be discussing drama schools. And rather than asking the all-important questions, I'll simply be spending all 30 minutes encouraging students to stay as far away from the dreadful places as possible. They really aren't worth your fucking time. You've been listening to Talking Siata, the only podcast on Earth about the Siata. And so to you, I say, good day.